welcome to Cannons on the Run, episode 17, a Norbertine podcast centered out of St. Norbert Abbey in De Pere, Wisconsin. I'm Frater Jonathan. And I'm Frater Jordan. And we are here recording after Jordan has successfully returned from his trip to the Holy Land. And this is an extra special episode because it's not just two of us, there's a third. We have a confer with us, Father Mike Brennan. Our third wheel. You can cut that. <laughs> so uh, instead of giving an introduction for Father Mike, I'm going to let him introduce himself. So Father Mike, tell our listeners who you are. I'm Father Mike Brennan. I'm the vocation director here at St. Norbert Abbey and a college chaplain at St. Norbert College. I'm excited to join in this, uh, this conversation about Jordan's trip to the Holy Land and my own trip to the Holy Land. So that's what we're going to talk about for this episode. Frater Jordan and Father Mike have both been to the Holy Land. Father Mike, you went in the year... It's coming up on three years already. Uh, it would have been August of 2015 through October of 2015. So okay. nearly three years ago. And Jordan just recently got back. Yeah. I have not been there yet. So I will not be contributing much in terms of content. I am the friendly neighborhood questioner of both of their experiences. I just want everybody to know what Frater Jordan did, though, immediately upon return okay. from the Holy Land. This is Frater, will you tell that story? Yeah, um, so people think I was crazy, and I don't disagree with them, <laughs> but some friends of Norbertines, they have, uh, they run pacing uh, companies, so they help pace different races, and this last Sunday was Green Bay Southcom Marathon, and Father Mike actually got me roped in uh, with with this group of pacers, so he's kind of to blame. I was uh, I got back from uh, the trip on Saturday at 11 p.m. I arrived in Green Bay. I got four hours of sleep, and then I paced a 3:35 marathon at the Green Bay Cellcom Marathon. The next morning. The next morning. <laughs> Which, just for all you out there listening, is an hour faster than I've ever run a marathon. And I have had a full night of sleep both nights that I've run a marathon. So we're all impressed with Frater Jordan. Super impressed. So I didn't get much sleep within that first 24 hours. I was in four different countries and ran a race. But then afterwards, I slept a good 10 hours. It was It was glorious. So that's the excitement about this podcast is that we get to have people like me and we're guessing many of our listeners who have not been to the Holy Land get to hear from two different Norbertines who have been there and reflect and share and compare some of what you guys experienced there. Yeah. That's where we're going to start. I've not been there. I actually am taking a survey of the Hebrew Bible course at St. Norbert College as a May term course, which has been really fun. And just within the last few days of class, we've been seeing pictures of certain sites in the Holy Land. So it's been really fun knowing that we were recording this episode coming up and seeing this stuff and thinking, ah, so this is what Mike and Jordan saw when they were there. Help us people who have not been there get a sense of what it was like being there. You know, say a few things maybe that really stuck out to you that you really remember. What would those be to help people like me get a sense of it? The thought that, that has stuck with me more than anything was I was overcome with the messiness and beauty and complexity and sacredness of the place. And oftentimes the messiness and the beauty and the sacredness and the complexity overlapped. Hmm. Um, one of the, the first places where I, this kind of slapped me in the face was walking through the marketplace in Jerusalem. 
it's an open air market and every smell is present. I mean, you have, a, it's a spice markets, you have uh, live, well, not live animals, but you have dead animals hanging for sale. Um, you have every kind of trinket and souvenir. So there's all kinds of colors and just people going in every direction, all kinds of language. And just this is a place that 2,000 years ago, Jesus would have walked down these similar cobblestones. And it, it was just, the senses were literally overwhelmed by that beauty and complexity. Before going over there, I had decided to do a blog was while I was over there. And I entitled it, Walking on Holy Ground. And the more I would reflect and share reflections on there, I recognized that Yes, I was walking on holy ground because of the because of Jesus and the apostles that had walked in those places and all the pilgrims that had walked in those places. But because of that takeaway of the messiness and beauty and complexity, the sacredness, I realized that I didn't have to go over there to be walking on holy ground. It reminded me of the human experience. It reminds me of the people that I have encountered throughout my life and particularly the people I've encountered this first year of priesthood. And how our lives, our own lives here in De Pere, wherever our listeners are listening, each and every one of us is walking on holy ground. Yeah, it was rings true to me as well from the experience, especially walking those streets where the markets are. It was kind of like, wow, a lot of hustle, bustle, a lot of even tension. Because with Jerusalem, especially, it's fascinating that this is a city sacred to three major world religions, Mm -hmm. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And I was talking to a shopkeeper who was selling icons, and he just kind of talked about Jerusalem is no one group city, but it's this diverse, multicultural, multi-religion city. And with that comes a lot of beauty, but a lot of tension as well. And I can only imagine what the tension was in Jesus's time. I mean, you look to scripture, Jesus was very provocative and people didn't necessarily like his message all the time. I I think of one of the places that captures that sacredness and complexity as clearly as any is the Holy Sepulchre itself. The Holy Sepulchre, of course, is the big, beautiful church that's built over Calvary where Jesus was crucified. Frater Jordan and I both, while we were over there, a lot of what we did was related to archaeology. And one of the key scholars is Jerome Murphy O'Connor that has a guidebook. And often in that guidebook, he says, well, this place might not be exactly where this happened or that happened. But when you walk into the Holy Sepulchre, before getting there, Jerome Murphy O'Connor prepares you that this is most likely the place, both where Christ was crucified, where he was anointed before burial, and where... He was laid in the tomb for three days and where he rose from the dead. And if that doesn't give you goosebumps, even just thinking about walking that close to those spaces, there's crowds going every which way. There's a lot of different music going on, different chant, but there are also opportunities for sacred silence there. Two of the most sacred moments for me in the place were kneeling and touching the rock of Calvary. There's a little hole below an altar. You can kneel down and place your hand uh, and touch the rock and where? you get it. At first, I'm like, I'm not feeling anything. <laughs> it's not there. Oh, where'd it go? <laughs> like, it's going to swallow my arm. What's going to grab me? <laughs> and then the other place that I found incredibly sacred was the place where Jesus was laid to rest in the tomb. And according to our tradition and according to what historical account and early Christian pilgrims to the place, we believe this really is the place where Christ was laid 
to rest. I had the opportunity to go in there and place my hands on that stone where Christ would have laid and then risen from the dead. Probably one of the most sacred moments of my whole trip. Father Jordan, did you encounter any of the, the tension of the, between the different Christian denominations that are in the place? I did. So I was not able to go into the tomb. Some classmates and I, we went really early in the morning to try to get in. Well, in the morning, they're celebrating masses in there. And in that section of the Holy Sepulchre, the tomb is owned, quotes, owned by the Greek Orthodox. And one thing I found interesting was their mass got done, or it was about to get done, and there must be a light on, you know, indicating that mass is being celebrated in this tomb. And a Franciscan from the Roman Catholic tradition accidentally went in too soon, and he was just apologizing over and over and over to the Greek Orthodox because, of course, the Roman Catholics don't own that section but are allowed in to celebrate Mass. And so it was interesting to see that interaction. Uh, Sadly, it doesn't seem like much collaboration among the different groups, right? So there's kind of this tension there, and it's like, wait, don't we all believe in Christ and the resurrection? You know, can't we all just get along, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, especially in that sacred sacred space, right? Yeah. Well, and, and that that is, I mean, another fascinating part is that because the Christians can't get along, Muslims have the keys to the Holy Sepulchre. So talking about interfaith dialogue, I mean, maybe there's a good start of right. But maybe also not. And that goes back centuries, too. The same Muslim family has been the tenders of the key. This is so awesome. I literally have learned all of this in the last 48 hours of my life. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, in, in class. class. We've been talking about a few of these things. Well, and the, the edicule itself, and I know I've used that word several times, the edicule is this edifice that has been built over uh, the tomb of Christ. And the edicule finally, within the last year or so, was renovated. And all of the Christian groups and the Israeli government agreed that this had to be done because the thing was literally falling down. So within the last year, that edicule has been restored. And I believe dating back to the 15th or 16th century before it had been repaired. What I found interesting or what I I was told and taught in this trip is that the Holy Sepulchre and also Capernaum, Peter's house, these sites were so well protected from the first century Christians that that's why we can determine that this is authentic. It wasn't just after Constantine made Christianity legal and then everybody was like, oh, this site was where Jesus was. Like This dates back to early first century when Christians were being persecuted. Did you see the first century carving in Nazareth that marks the site of Mary's house? Yes, I did. So in Nazareth, there's that beautiful Church of the Annunciation, and there's that little museum where they show that the reason they believe that this is the cave where the Annunciation, the Incarnation took place, is because first century pilgrims carved Chi Maria, Ave Maria, or Hail Mary, into the side of the stone, and they still have that stone preserved from the first century. Yeah, wow. It's neat when the archaeology can confirm these places of pilgrimage that have been so since very near to the time of Christ. Yeah. Mary's house was one of the ones you talked about, right? As one of your more profound experiences or one of your, I mean, there's so many profound things like you guys just talked about the Holy Sepulchre, but as far as other favorite places, that was one of them, right? Right. So um, 
This is this little home is in Ephesus, Turkey, and according to tradition, Saint John, after commissioned by Christ at the foot of the cross to care for Mary, took the Mother Mary, the Virgin Mary, and lived in this tiny little house in the mountains of Ephesus. And one of the reasons it was sacred to me, because having only been there a week or two at that time, many of the sacred sites that we visited were, there were so many tourists, so many pilgrims, so many tour guides going on. But in this tiny little house in the countryside of Ephesus, there were no cameras, there were no tours going on. And it was one of the first times when I was over there that I got to kneel down and just have a quiet moment of prayer. And it was one of the places that prayer permeated the place and was literally soaked in prayer. Another place that was like that for me was the anointing stone back in the Holy Sepulchre. Mm. Um, this anointing stone actually only dates back to the Middle Ages, so probably not from the time of Christ. But people almost 24-7 are praying over that anointing stone. They're laying precious articles to bring back to family members. Mm -hmm. So maybe Christ's body did anoint it. But the prayer over the centuries has permeated it, and you could feel that profound presence of prayer and sacredness. Mm -hmm. How about you, Frederick Jordan? What were other favorite places for you that you got to visit? One of my most favorite places was Magdala. And so being around the Sea of Galilee, that's where Jesus, that, that was his place of ministry. And they uncovered a first century synagogue at Magdala. I think it's the only first century synagogue that they have from that region. And for me, it's like, wow, this is where Jesus was. Like, I mean, being a rabbi, being a teacher, this is where his feet were. That was uh, amazing. Um, so for me, that's, that's incredible to see those sites that Jesus walked, walked right here. Like, I'm experiencing this, this place that Jesus was. Centuries. That's, that's incredible. Yeah. So I think my trip was a little bit different, and we started in Israel and then moved to Turkey and Greece, where I think you, Father Mike, it was starting in Greece and Turkey and then moving to Israel. Correct. But for me, that was incredible because Turkey and Greece was following the spread of the gospel. So looking at St. Paul, and I just had a class on St. Paul with Father Ferdinand, and when Father Jonathan and I went to Rome, we went to the Basilica of St. Paul outside the wall and seeing St. Paul's chains. And for me, I have a deeper appreciation and understanding for St. Paul and looking at how did a Jew, Saul or Paul, find his mission to the Gentiles, like people who were despised of the time. So it's incredible that Christianity even took root and looking at these major metropolitan areas like Ephesus and Corinth, I know, was both really, really big for both of us. I was fascinated by those cities and I had no idea how much the empire really spread out. I mean, you can look at it on a map and see how big it is, but you can't really comprehend how profound that footprint of the Greeks and the Romans would have been. Because every town that you walk through had these great stadiums, but also columns that have all these gods all over the place. So Paul was bringing Christianity to a world that was surrounded by gods and goddesses. And all of a sudden he comes in and says, no, I'm bringing you the real God. And it's mystifying and inspiring that Paul was able to bring this message to a world that was already saturated with belief in the supernatural. Mm -hmm. 
And that it took hold in that part of the world to me is just fascinating. It, there was something about Christianity that took hold. I think it was the passion of Paul, but I also think, think it was the, the generosity of the earliest Christian church and going into and reaching out to the people, the margins. They were, they're the ones that went out and cared for the widows and the orphans and the neglected. And I, that was The Anuim. There you go. Yeah. Good job. Um, Ooh, wait. Help me understand. What language is that? Hebrew. Hebrew. The Anuim. It's used a lot in the Gospel of Luke. And it's the unfortunate, the neglected, the poor, those that aren't cared for by others. You can use that in your class. Yeah, I'll drop that one. Yeah, I'll drop that one. So can you tell me where, where this would be speaking about the Anawim? <laughs> can you unpack that? No, that's just, that's my question. <laughs> I have nothing else to offer. <laughs> Hearing you talk about that perspective of being in these places, I love this idea of making learning real, that no longer am I just reading about Paul in stories. I can't imagine. I love you describing pillars, all these giant buildings that are saying a different message than what this one man is walking into a city to about to talk about otherwise. That feeds so well into why I loved Corinth so much. Because St. Paul used the daily life of the Corinthians to tell the gospel. Those stories, for me, uh, jump off the page even more, knowing some of the background of the Corinthians. Right. Having literally walked around and seen there in these buildings, wow. And that's, so it was interesting to see how that Greco-Roman culture influenced scripture. Because even in Jerusalem, I did the Della Rosa, but first went to St. Anne's Church, which is Bethsaida, I believe, where the, where the pools are. And in looking to scripture, Jesus doesn't tell the crippled man to go wash himself in the pool like he does in other healing cases, but tells him to pick up his mat and walk. And I guess that's also because Bethsaida were these Greco-Roman healing pools to Asclepius. So it was kind of a contradiction against these false gods that Jesus was saying, I am the true God who offers healing. And so it was kind of like, whoa, this all makes sense now. I didn't know about the Asclepius connection there to those pools. I knew I visited those pools, but I did not know the Asclepius connection. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So it's just, it's like the more you know. (laughs) Seriously, this is what I love. I'm sitting here hearing you both talk about this. And at certain points, you're just gushing back and forth with shared understanding of things, which I've yet to study, which is exciting for me to, you know, look forward to that. And if you can't travel to the Holy Land, uh, but you are interested in St. Paul, I have a book recommendation. Paul, His Story by Jerome Murphy O'Connor. He writes it as a historical fiction. He uses the letters of Paul and the Acts of the Apostles to kind of weave together a biography of St. Paul. Well, since you're making plugs. Yeah. Hey, I like that. That's a good transition. <laughs> I'm the newly named vocation director for St. Norbert Abbey. And by the way, by the time this airs, I will be one year a priest. Um, thank you for the applause here in the studio and also at home for you listeners. If you yourself are discerning or you know somebody that might be discerning priesthood or religious life, encourage them to seek out a spiritual director, send them our way here to St. Norbert Abbey. We'd be welcome to have them on a come and see visit. But most importantly, I ask that you pray um, for vocations to priesthood, to religious life, and particularly to our way of life here at St. Norbert Abbey. And so what's really cool, though, too, you're celebrating your first year of priesthood. Your uncle Ted is celebrating his 51st year of priesthood. And your youngest brother is celebrating 
month two? A month and a half. He was ordained April 5th or 6th of this year. I was ordained May 27th of 2017. And Uncle Ted was ordained May 27th of 1967. Something in the water. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That is awesome. Well, that baptismal water. You're right, Jordan. Yeah. Ah, nice. Ooh, very good. Very good. If you want to hear more about the podcast, go to www.numberteens.org. Check out the podcast tab, or you can contact us by clicking on Contact the Podcast Team. You can also find us on iTunes. Make sure to rate us, leave a review if you're so compelled. And subscribe. Subscribe. Thank you. Yeah, totally. So we're very grateful to have Father Mike with us on this podcast episode. Make sure to send him an email of compliments and uh, salutations and greetings. And if you are interested in a vocation to the Novertine way of life, he's your guy. As we continue to discern our lives, our vocations, and our faith, growing in one mind and one heart on our way to God. Holy Father, St. Norbert, pray Pray for for us. us. Thank you.